Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Doesn't that look like fun? Some of you are like exhausting maybe, but I don't know. Man, I think that looks exciting. I'm so pumped for our students because we're doing something we've never done. This summer, we're going to a week-long student life camp. It's going to be phenomenal. We'll be in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. They're staying at a retreat center. It's got a water park, a bunch of other stuff. you got vertical worship. It's going to be leading worship. Some phenomenal speakers. I think this is really going to be spiritual marker in the lives of so many of our students. And so listen, if you're the parent of someone who's in 6th to 12th grade, you're not going to want to miss this. Or... If you're the parent of someone who's currently in fifth grade and will be headed into middle school next year, they're also welcome to take part in this camp. So to find out all the information and to register, you can go to our website at bpc.life slash students. All the information's there. There is a $50 deposit due by the end of February to reserve your spot. So you want to go ahead and do that. And if you have any questions whatsoever, you can talk to our student director, uh, Keith, and he will fill you in on all the details. Well, this morning, I am super excited because we are kicking off a brand new series that's going to go from today into the month of April. So we're going to spend the next several months looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, when I tell people about this series and what it's going to look like, I generally get one of two responses. The first one is like, there's people who are like, they're so excited and like Romans is their favorite book in the entire world. And they've read it 10,000 times. They've underlined every word. They've memorized it in the Greek and they're just so excited. And if that's you, we're glad that you're here. Um, But the other response that I get, which typically is a more common one, is people are like, Matt, have you ever read the book of Romans before? Because, I mean, there's a lot of theology and they're talking about justification and circumcision and election. I don't even understand half of it. And we're going to be doing this for a couple of months. I mean, that sounds exhausting. And if that's you, listen, I feel your pain. Because I think for a lot of pastors, myself included, the idea of tackling Paul's letter to the Romans is a little bit daunting. It can be a little bit overwhelming. Because many people consider this outside of the Gospels to be the most influential book in the New Testament. So much so that that scholars and theologians for literally almost 2,000 years have been writing on it and discussing it and debating it. You know, from early church fathers like Origen and Irenaeus up through Augustine or the reformers like Martin Luther, even to modern day scholars like N.T. Wright. There are people who devoted large portions, if not their entire adult life, studying Paul and his letter to the Romans. In fact, there's a former pastor and theologian named John Piper, and I believe he did over 300 sermons just on the first 11 chapters of Romans, all right? There's 16 chapters. Some of you are like, a few months sounds exhausting. That's six years worth of sermons on 11 chapters of the Bible. And so as a pastor, I think, man, there's like so much information out there, and and how do we really like condense it down and kind of bring it together so that, number one, that we can present it in a way that's accurate? Because if we're going to take the time to go through a letter in the Bible, we want to make sure we're presenting what it's actually teaching. And number two, in a way that's clear. Because my goal every week is that when you go home and someone says, hey, what was the sermon about? Like, you could actually tell them what the sermon's about. We don't want to get, like, uh, too much in our head about all of this uh, theological stuff. And then the last thing, in a way that's relevant to people. And by the way, it is that third point 
that is the very reason that we are doing this series. Because I think the letter to the Romans is just as relevant to us today as it was to the Christians it was first addressed to. Because uh, when Paul wrote this letter, like we have to understand it is a letter. It is not a, a book of theology. He wasn't trying to just uh, do a brain download of some important theological concepts. Is there theology in the letter? Absolutely. But it's not theology for the sake of theology. It's, it's lived theology. He wanted it to impact the way that these Christians were living. You see, it was a letter written to address a certain conflict that had arose in the church. So you see, the Roman church was one that was really divided. It was racially divided, theologically divided. You had one group accusing another group of being so progressive that they're heretics, and, another, and then that group accusing the first group of being so conservative that they aren't actually following Jesus. I mean, we look at a church like that, and then I look around at the American church today, and even though it's not one-to-one, -one, I can definitely see some similarities. And I think in the American church, there's certain times where we've become racially divided, certainly theologically divided. I see groups of Christians calling other groups heretics because they're so progressive. And I see those same Christians turning around and saying, well, you're so conservative, I don't even think you're following Jesus. And man, Paul wrote this letter to help bring unity to a church that was bitterly divided. And I think that in our culture today, what a world as polarized and divided as ours needs is they need an example of what unity around Jesus looks like. And so my hope and my goal as we walk through this letter is that it wouldn't just transform us on a personal, individual level, but it would also change us as a church, that we would be a kind of church that shows the world what heaven on earth looks like, that despite where we land on the political spectrum or theological spectrum, that we say that following Jesus is most important, and we would be a church that's united unlike any other. Now, in order for us to kind of move along this series in a way that makes sense, today's going to be a little bit different, all right? What I'm going to do is I've got to give us some context and some background, lay out the situation that Paul is addressing, and then today we're going to jump in just to the first few verses. We're going to look at Paul's introduction to this letter to the Romans, and then starting next week, we're going to hit the ground running. So, if you're a note taker, great. If you're not, you may want to jot a few down just because I'm not going to have time to review any of this stuff next week. We just got to keep plowing through. Now, when we do series like this, I know there's a lot of questions that pop up. And so for this series, there's a text number on the screen. If you have questions at any time, feel free to text those in. Also, at the end of service, if you just want to raise your hand, Mr. Keith will have the microphone and we can address those questions as well. So having said all that, let's talk about what is this letter. It was a letter written by Paul to the Christian church in Rome. Now, the Roman church was not like, hey, we're going to go to Roman church. They have services at 915 and 1045, and I love their donuts and their coffee. Like, that's not the kind of church this was. In fact, they didn't all gather in one big gathering. The, the Roman church was actually a collection of five smaller house churches, I think that's important for us to understand because a church's building actually dictates a lot of how that church operates. So, for example, we have a building where there's an auditorium. We have a kids ministry. So, you know, like you're going to come in. Your kids are going to have a good time. There's probably going to be some people on the stage speaking or leading worship. Like, like that's the expectation. 
But that's not how these Roman house churches operated. In fact, in Rome, oftentimes houses doubled as places of business. So oftentimes there was a big atrium where people would be coming and going all throughout the day. And it's likely that this is where those Christians would gather. And they didn't have a pulpit there. There wasn't like one single person doing the teaching, but they would have a table and they would sit down and they would share a meal together. And every week we have communion and it's crackers and juice, which is great. But like for them, communion was a full-on meal. And they would sit together and they would sing. And they would encourage one another. They would share what God is teaching. And so this is kind of the context. We actually know historically where these five churches were located and kind of the makeup of these churches. So you had a few people who were a little wealthier who had the houses where people would meet. But by and large, the vast majority of these Christians were people who were living in poverty. They were blue-collar workers. They, were just, they weren't like the most wealthiest, influential people in the world. And when they gathered together, each of these house churches was somewhere between 20 and no more than 40 people. In fact, probably right around 30 is where each of these uh, churches would land, which is actually fascinating that maybe the most influential letter in the New Testament was written to a church that's about the size of Bridgepoint. Right? Like, just to, to kind of give you some context for that, these are people from different backgrounds, different ways of life. And primarily, there's kind of two different groups to think about. Because when the church in Rome started, it did not start like a lot of other churches in the New Testament. If you ever read the book of Acts, you know that Paul would go on these missionary journeys. And so he would go out and he would always start in the synagogue to Jewish people. He would walk through the scriptures and show them how Jesus was the Messiah. And when people decided to follow Jesus, he would help start house churches and then he would move on to the next city. But what makes Rome unique is Paul hadn't been there yet. Paul hadn't been to Rome. He didn't know these Christians personally. He wasn't the one who started the church. What likely happened is that somebody began following Jesus in another town, and then they went to Rome, and they went in the synagogue. And so you have the first Christians there were all Jewish Christians. Now, if you remember from your Old Testament studies, the Jewish people followed the Torah or the law. And so they would do things like circumcision, eat kosher food, you celebrate the Sabbath. And those were not just theological things they did. Those were identity markers. That was what separated them from other races and other people. So it was a part of who they were at their core. So when these Jewish Christians first started following Jesus, they also still kept the kosher laws and the Sabbath and all of those other things. Now, as the church began to grow, there were some non-Christian or some, some Gentiles who started following Jesus, sorry, non-Jewish or Gentile people who started following Jesus. And when they came in, they didn't have the Torah. They, they didn't care about all of those rules and regulations. And so you have some people following Jesus, but doing different things. Well, a few years before Paul writes his letter to the Roman Christians, the Roman emperor at the time was a man named Claudius. And we have these historical documents where it says, Claudius got frustrated by these disturbances caused by the Jewish people who were arguing about a man named Christus or Christ. And so from his perspective, you know, Jewish people is not just theological, it's an ethnicity. And, and they didn't distinguish between Christians and non-Christians. They just knew there's a bunch of Jewish people, and they keep causing this big ruckus and arguing and debating about this guy named Christ. And he got so fed up with it that he kicked them out of Rome. So all Jewish people, whether you follow Jesus or not, 
were kicked out of Rome. All right, so this is audience participation portion. If the Jewish Christians are gone, who are the ones that are left in the Roman churches? Gentiles, right? They're the non-Jewish people. And so all of a sudden, whereas the Jewish Christians had kind of started the church and were in leadership positions, they had authority, they had influence, they're gone. So now it's all Gentile Christians who are in positions of leadership, who had authority, who, who had influence there. And then a few years later, when Claudius dies, Nero takes control. And Nero was not a good dude, but he did allow Claudius's decree to lapse. And so the Jewish people came back to Rome, and now they come back to a church that looks and feels very different. Because now nobody's keeping the Torah. Nobody's following the Old Testament commands. And not only that, but, but, but when they try to speak up about it, the people in authority keep quieting them down. And so they come back frustrated that, hey, when we were in charge, we did things the right way. And now these Gentiles who don't even know Scripture, they don't take Scripture seriously at all. They think that they can lead this church better than we can. And then the Gentiles would get upset and say, guys, why are you still following the Old, the Old Testament? Why are you still following those laws? We, we don't have to do that anymore. And the Gentiles would actually do this uh, thing that was very manipulative. They would take digs at their uh, Jewish uh, brothers in Christ by having the communion meal and serving non-kosher foods. Like imagine showing up and it's a low country boil, right? Like I don't think they did a low country boil. I, I would do low country boil for communion, but you have like, like shellfish and shrimp and you got, got sausage. Like none of that stuff was kosher. And so they would have communion with all this unkosher food so that half the people in attendance wouldn't be able to share in communion. They're literally causing divisions in the church. And this fighting back and forth gets so intense, so bad, that the Roman church is about to fall apart. And so Paul, even though he's never met them before, says, I, I got to insert myself to kind of bring some unity here. And so he begins to write this letter. And it's actually the longest of his letters. And I believe the reason it's so long is because he didn't know any of the people. And the reason he starts with so much theology is he's never taught them before. And he's got to lay the theological groundwork. Here's all the stuff we've got to agree on if we're going to live this certain way. And so he writes out this letter, and he sends it with a woman named Phoebe. Now, Phoebe was responsible to going around to each of the churches and reading the letter. Now, I don't know if you ever read Romans out loud. I don't even know if you've ever read Romans before, but it takes a long time just to read it out loud. But she wouldn't just come and kind of read it like this, and I'm going to keep going on. No, that's not how she would do it. It was supposed to be a dramatic presentation. And not only that, but Paul would remind her, here's a part you need to emphasize. So when you're talking to, to the church and you say, all right, now, listen, the strong, like you, Bill, you got to cut it out. Or, hey, the weak, like Sally over here, like, no, we're not doing that anymore. I mean, can you imagine if I got on stage and I was like, Listen, the Bible says not to get drunk, Adam. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, that would be a little intense, right? So you got this whole thing where she's going around and she's teaching. She's calling people out. It would take a couple hours for her to present this, and then she'd be there to answer questions if anybody needed clarification on anything. Which, by the way, as a side note, there's a lot of debate. Should women be allowed to teach and preach in churches? And I think it's so funny that we want to argue that they can't, and yet Paul trusted what we consider the most influential letter to be preached by a woman. And I think that sometimes we have these debates about women in leadership because we have the privilege to have those debates. 
We're not worried about the church falling apart. But I think Paul was like, listen, we need all hands on deck if we're going to lead this thing. And when we get to Romans 16, you're going to see there were churches led by women and led by couples. I mean, so we're going to get there. I'm not jumping ahead, but I do just like, like understand like what is going on here. Like there's an urgency behind this letter because Paul knows that if this church is going to survive, they have to radically pursue unity. And so he writes this letter he has it delivered to the Romans, and that's all the setup to get to look at just a few verses we have time to look at today. Everybody still with me? Still tracking? All right. Let's dive in. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who is a descendant of David according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what an introduction. We just read seven verses, and like five of them are Paul introducing himself to these people that he's never met before. And I find it fascinating that the primary way Paul identifies himself, he doesn't start by saying, I had a radical encounter with Jesus, and I used to persecute, and now I'm going around proclaiming the gospel, and I have authority given to me by the apostles themselves. He doesn't start that way. How does he identify himself first, primarily? He says, I'm Paul, a servant. And actually, that word in Greek is the word slave. I'm a slave. Now, that would be pretty radical to hear in that context, because in the Roman culture, the only people considered fully human were free men, because they were self-determining. They weren't mastered by anyone or anything and so if you were a woman or a child or a slave, you were less than human. And yet that is exactly how Paul chooses to identify himself as a slave. And there's two reasons I think that's significant. First, because he doesn't come in and say, listen, there's a problem here. And so I'm going to step in. I'm going to put my apostle pants on and we're just going to straighten things out. He doesn't come in and demand things over people. He comes in as a servant underneath them to serve, and to care for them. And I believe that most conflict we experience in our relationships with other people is because we want to come in over the top to get things done the way we want them done. Like I'll speak for myself personally. Most of the conflict in my marriage is usually a result because I want to do something or I want something done, and so I'm going to make a snarky comment or I'm going to be passive aggressive or, heck, I'm just going to do it even though I know that nobody else wants to do it. And so I'm going to come in and exercise my authority. But Paul knows, listen, there's already division. The only way to heal division is to say I'm not most important. I'm here to serve other people. I'm here as a servant, as a slave of Jesus. I'm coming underneath to help out. And there's this really popular phrase that leadership is influence. And listen, I do believe that, but I think a lot of times we misapply that. And we think what it means to be a leader is to influence people to do things our way. 
But what I think a real leader is, is somebody who says, listen, I want to use my influence to serve others, not to manipulate them, to come alongside and help them and not to force my own agenda. So he comes in saying, listen, I'm a servant. And who is he a servant of? It was not a trick question. It was Jesus, right? He's a slave of Jesus. And again, a slave isn't fully human, but Paul's making the point, I am fully human because I'm actually a slave to Jesus. I'm not slave to my desires. I'm not slave to sin. I'm not a slave to somebody else. I am someone who's radically committed to Jesus, and I've been called by him to proclaim the gospel. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. And you can almost hear him speaking to both the weak and the strong as he's explaining. He starts addressing the weak. He's like, we know that this is Jesus foretold by the scriptures and the prophets. That might not mean much to the Gentiles, but the Jewish people knew the scriptures and the prophets. He came from the line of David. He's the true Messiah. Again, might not mean much to Gentiles. Certainly meant a lot to the Jewish Christians who were there. And then he kind of goes, and he was declared the son of God through his resurrection so we may live for his name's sake and even for the Gentiles. I haven't forgotten about you guys either. But like, listen, we're all following Jesus here. We're all subject to the gospel, which then leads us to the question, well, what is the gospel? And we have to be careful to make sure that we're allowing scripture to answer that question for us and not us base our answer on tradition or what's been taught to us or handed down. Because I think for a lot of people, if you were asked the question, what is the gospel, the, the answer would be something like, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and if I believe in him, then I get to go spend eternity in heaven with God, and if not, I'll spend an eternity in hell apart from him. Now, there are parts of that that are true, but that's not here how Paul presents the gospel. In fact, if you look at the eight gospel messages in the book of Acts, those gospel messages don't talk about heaven and hell at all. Because the gospel is not just a reality for something in the future. It's actually something that Jesus has come to do and change and transform now that will then last for all eternity. See, for Paul, the gospel starts in Genesis chapter 1. Some of you are like, oh no, here he goes again. We're tired of hearing this. But I think it's so important for us to have that foundation that we know that when God created the world, he carved out a place that would be heaven on earth this garden in Eden where everything is good and it's abundant and it's teeming with life and resources and there's everything that anyone could possibly need. And in heaven on earth, God puts Adam and Eve to be his images, right? You remember us talking about being made in the image of God? And that doesn't mean we look like him. It means we act like him. We kind of, they use the language Genesis 2.15 to work in the world and watch over it. It's priestly language. So, so Adam and Eve were supposed to do work not for their namesake, but for God's namesake, right? They're working for, on his behalf, for his glory. That's what that means. And so they were to continue the work that everywhere there was disorder, they would bring order. Wherever there's brokenness, they'd bring healing. They were supposed to expand heaven on earth to image God. But we know the story, and they didn't choose to image God. Instead, they chose to image themselves, that they want to decide what's good and evil, what's right. We want to be in charge. And when they image themselves, all of a sudden they become slaves to sin and death. See, sin is the thing that prevents us from imaging God. We're supposed to image God, but a lot of times we image ourselves. And by the way, it sounds good, right? 
like, hey, we just we, we want to be successful and we want to have the nice house, a nice car, and all that can be good. But the sin of greed will, will keep you being materialistic instead of generous. Or hey, we really want real meaningful relationship and love and acceptance, but the sin of lust will keep us imaging that through sexual relationships with other people instead of being intimate with our creator. And so we become slaves to imaging ourselves. In fact, in Genesis chapter 11, we get to what many people consider the low point in Genesis. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. Anybody ever heard that story before? You know, growing up, I heard, you know, well, they built this tower to heaven, and um, before they could get there, God uh, made them all speak different languages, and they dispersed. And I thought, man, like, they must have been doing pretty good if they scared God enough he had to scatter them. But if you actually read Genesis 11, that's not why God caused them to scatter. It says they were making this tower for their name's sake. They were using technology and resources to image themselves other than God. And in the very next chapter then, you get God coming to a man named Abram. He says, Abram, listen, we've got to set people free. So if you will trust me and you will follow me, then I'm going to bless you and your descendants. They'll be this mighty nation. They'll end up becoming the nation of Israel. And then through Israel, I want to bless the whole world. And by the way, we get in this thing where sometimes, you know, the, the Israelites are like, well, we're chosen by God, but we forget what were they chosen for? That they weren't just chosen for salvation. They were chosen to be a light to the other nations, to bless everybody else. And we know that story too, that ultimately Israel neglected their call to image God, they image themselves. And as a result, the end of our Old Testament, there's the questions as well as this whole project failed. That's when Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus does what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He did what Israel didn't do. He fully imaged God. He showed us what a life fully alive looks like. That's why Jesus says things like, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He said, I'm not starting over and doing something new. I'm showing you what it looks like if you actually do the thing that God has called us to do. And he certainly worked in the world and watched over it. He healed people. He cast out demons. He raised them from the dead. These weren't magic tricks. He's literally bringing heaven to earth and meeting the needs of the people around him. And what thanks did Jesus get? He gets killed. And again, it looks like, well, this whole project has failed but then three days later, he rose from the dead. And what Paul says through his resurrection, that's how we know he's the son of God. That's so important. Like you don't get past the resurrection. You don't get past the cross. The cross isn't something that Jesus just endured and it was a thing that happened to him. It is the very thing that marked what his life was about. It was about humility. It was about serving others. It's what Paul tries to imitate when he says, now I'm a slave to Jesus because it's only by living that way that I can become fully human. That is the gospel, that God has rescued humanity and set us free to be the kind of people we were always intended to be, and that's God's images. Are we still tracking? Because that's the foundation. That's just how Paul introduces himself, right? We got a long way to go in this series, but that's the foundation, and that reality ought to impact the way we live. He continues his thought process in verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. 
Like, don't miss this. He says, I'm so thankful for you guys. Like, this church popped up. There was not an apostle sent there. And the news about this church has spread all over the world. And God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What is he saying here? Saying, listen, I've been praying that I would somehow be able to get to Rome to meet you, and that when I get there, that I could impart a spiritual gift. In other words, that, that I could be a spiritual gift to you. I love, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts later on in the series, but I love Paul's attitude is not like, well, God gave me the gift of teaching. Are there any teaching opportunities in your church? That's not how he, he didn't approach spiritual gifts as I have these gifts and how can I use that for my benefit? He said, no, what do you need so I can become the gift that the church needs so that both of us might be encouraged you see, I think a lot of times when we approach church, we kind of approach it from a perspective of well, what can I get out of it, right? Can I use my gifts? Is the kids' ministry going to be relevant to my kids? Are there going to be students that my student can connect to? Is the teaching good enough to feed me? Is the worship to my taste? Paul isn't approaching it from what is he going to get out of it. He approaches it as how can I be a gift and a blessing to your church family? And I think there are some of us here today that you've got to make that switch in your mind. The spiritual gifts weren't given for your benefit, so you could be blessed by it. Like we are called to be a spiritual gift to one another so that we can be mutually encouraged. Again, Paul doesn't say, let me come there and let me encourage you because you're going through a rough time. He's not positioning himself above them. Hey, let me encourage you, but I want you to encourage me as well. And then in verse 13, he says, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. I've often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you. So I, I, I've tried to get there because I want to get there to have a fruitful ministry. Don't forget that phrase, fruitful ministry, just as I've had amongst the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul wants to get there so he can have a fruitful ministry. And the fruitful ministry is going to come because he's going to preach the gospel. All right now, we just talked about what the gospel is. God setting people free to fully image him, to be fully alive. And he says, listen, I want to preach that so there can be fruit in the ministry. Now, if we talk about what makes something a fruitful or successful ministry, if we were to throw out some ideas, I'm sure some people would say, well, there'd be a lot of conversions, right? Like people giving their life to follow Jesus. I think the church would be growing and, and the budget would be strong. And, and there's a lot of things we could list as fruitful ministry. But Paul's not really aiming for conversion or growth or anything else like that because he doesn't say, let me come and preach so that more people join the church. You know, I want to come preach the gospel to you. Now, wait a second. Why would Paul want to preach the gospel to people who already follow Jesus? Because they might know the gospel, but they weren't living the gospel. See, wherever there is division, that's not the gospel. Wherever there's animosity and hatred, that's not gospel living. Wherever there's fear and othering, that's not the gospel message. And he wants to come and proclaim and do gospel work 
And the way that he does that is by mending broken relationships, by reconciling people to one another, and by helping them work towards unity. Right? Gospel work has to be done in this community before it can be done in that community. Like it has to change the way that we live and approach one another. And I think that this is so key because we want to talk about the gospel, but I know that some of you have come in today and there's broken relationships in your life. And I know, I'm sure if I sat down and I heard your story, I could empathize because somebody wounded you, they hurt you, they stabbed you in the back. But man, there's that bitterness there and that's kind of seeped in. And listen, gospel work means we've got to forgive the people who hurt us. Gospel work means that for some of us who are here today, you know that you have hurt somebody else. And you know deep down in your heart that there's somebody that you owe an apology to. And you need to take that first step towards reconciliation. And maybe today, the gospel work you need to do is actually pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I'm sorry, I didn't treat you the way you should have been treated. I think for some of us, the gospel work is that person who has asked for help time and time again. And honestly, you're like, you know what? I'm done with it. They got themselves into this mess. They're going to get themselves out of this mess. Listen, I have been there before. And then I have to remember the same Jesus that died and rose again to set me free did that for them. And he has called me to love and to serve and to be a slave to him even when I don't feel like it. And there's been plenty of times in my life where I know God's calling me to serve somebody, and I'm like, Jesus, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because you say I'm going to do it. And I will serve with just like the worst attitude ever. And even when I serve like that, what I find is that Jesus begins to break through the pride in my heart to convict me, to change me, and he uses that to help me become more like him. And I'm wondering if there's somebody in your life that you know you need to be serving, but man, you just, you, you've been refusing See, that is gospel work. There has to be unity. There is so much brokenness in the world that if we're really going to believe that Jesus is the king who came to bring heaven to earth, that he really did come to do something totally new and different, then there ought to be evidence in our lives. And I wonder if some of us, you're here today, just you needed the gospel preached to you, that God came to set you free from imaging your own success your own dreams and hopes and desires to set you free from that so that you can serve others with humility. And then the last verse we're going to have time to get to. I wanted to get through 17. We don't have time for it. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. I love this verse, and I think a lot of times I grew up and you know what I what I just kind of really assumed is that what Paul says, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and they can come after me and they can persecute me, but I'm not backing down because I'm not ashamed. But that's not the point that he's making here. Because remember, that's a shame, honor kind of culture. And there's a church that is so divided and broken that the question they're asking themselves is, is the gospel real? Does it really work? Because I look around and we're just as divided and broken as any other group of people. You know, I thought the gospel was supposed to unite different kinds of people. That was supposed to bring us together. I thought this place was supposed to be heaven on earth, but it just feels like earth. And in a very loving, pastoral way, Paul's saying, guys, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I still have hope. 
I still believe it has the power for salvation to change people, to unite people who the world says should not be united. I'm not ashamed, and I believe that the power is still at work today. Listen, some of us, maybe you came in today, and you're starting to lose faith that the gospel can actually work the world can actually change, that the church can be who the church has been called to be. As I'm here to tell you, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I still believe, despite all the division and the controversy and the abuse, that Jesus can still work to bring healing and hope and make the church a place that is heaven on earth. I have one more point I want to make, but before I do that, I do want to open it up if we have any questions. You want to raise your hand? Mr. Keith will be around with the microphone. I know it's the first week, and so people you know, not quite ready for questions, and that's okay. Um, if you're not ready, just you can um, take a picture of that phone number up there. You can text in all throughout the week, um, and we'll take time every Sunday to answer those questions. Again, I just want to make this a place where this is not Matt coming here saying, here's what you need to believe and take this away, but just an opportunity for us to have conversation and to pursue Jesus together. Uh, I do have one recommended resource for us, um, Reading Romans Backward by Scott McKnight. This book is less than 200 pages. It's, it's, very, it's written for anybody to understand. Scott McKnight's a theologian. He's a, a seminary professor and does this brilliant thing. You guys ever like movies with twist endings? You get to the end, you're like, oh, that changed the way I saw the whole movie. Like Basically every M. Night Shyamalan movie ever, right? Well, um, he takes that approach with the book of Romans. He literally starts at the end and just gives you an overview of the chapter and he goes backwards. So when you understand the goal that Paul has in mind at the end, then it actually makes understanding all the theology on the front end of the book a little bit easier. And so if you're just like, hey, I want to go that next step, or if you're just wondering what are some of the resources that Matt taps into, this is a great one that you guys can uh, check out um, at your local bookstore. I guess that's my plug for the day. Um, but I wanted to circle back around to this idea of not being ashamed of the gospel. Because maybe, again, maybe this is just me, maybe this isn't you, but, you know, I get online and I just, over the last couple years, you just see report after report of pastors who have moral failings, which is kind of a nice way of saying they abuse people, right? We see churches that misuse their money. There's a lot of stuff that makes you look around and be like, man, at least for me, I'm like, God, are you sure this whole church thing is really working? Like, is this just another failed project like Adam and Eve and like Israel? Like, is this, is this how it is? Like, could there be a better way? And it's not even just that, but I am sure that there are some of us who are here today that have actually been deeply wounded by churches in the past. I know even for uh, me and, and my family, in the first few years of our marriage, we went through some of the, the meanest things people have ever said to us or about us were people who went to church with us. Some of the most manipulative things that have been done to us were done by church leaders who were supposed to be there to protect us. And I look at us, and man, we had every reason to say, you know what, forget this. We, we, we thought we were helping. We thought we were making a difference. But we can do more apart from the church than we can do in the church. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you know exactly what that feels like. And maybe the reason that you've been sitting back, you've been sitting on the fence, because you know what, I just, I can't, I can't do that. I can't walk through that again. Listen, I, I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. I still believe that Jesus can work through every hurt and pain, 
every manipulation, every backstab. Because I don't think he's glorified in those things. Because I don't think those things are going to stop him from working and moving. Listen, the righteous will always be faithful. There's always going to be people who are pursuing Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is not that you would come to Bridgepoint and be a part of our church family and never get hurt because the reality is there's some level of hurt that just happens because you're in relationship with people and we're all messy. But my hope is that through the hurt and the pain, we're so committed to Jesus that we don't let that stuff divide us. I don't know every person here and, and your personal background, but what I do know is that there's people at Bridgepoint across all levels of the political spectrum, across all levels of the theological spectrum. Some of you aren't even on the spectrum because you don't even know what you think or believe. And, and guess what? That's okay. And the beautiful thing is we end every service by celebrating communion. Now I wish it was a low country boil. I really do. I wish it maybe like some good barbecue or something. But what we do have, we have crackers and juice. So it's not quite as exciting, but it's still the same thing. As we share communion together, despite all of our differences and disagreements, despite all of our hurt and pain and wounds and all of our failures and all of our successes, we remind ourselves that at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so today, as we have our time of communion, I'll just give you permission to look around the room at all the different kinds of people here. Listen, there's no other place that a group of people like this would be together except that we're following Jesus. Then I would also encourage some of you that if you know there's somebody that you've been holding bitterness towards and you need to forgive them or maybe somebody you need to ask forgiveness from, do that in this time. I mean, listen, Jesus says if you go to make your offering and remember somebody has something against you, leave your offering there, go make things right. I think if Jesus was here, he'd say, hey, leave communion there, go make things right. Maybe right where you're at, you need to send a text. Maybe you need to step out in the lobby make a phone call. Maybe you need to grab somebody in here, pull them off to the side, just pursue forgiveness, pursue reconciliation, pursue unity, because that's the kind of church that we want to be. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're just so thankful. We're thankful that despite everything that has gone wrong and could go wrong, that you're still king. And you're still working to bring unity and healing and wholeness. And we know the world is a, a polarized, divided place. But I, I pray, pray that, that we, as a church family, would be so united around Jesus that we would be a light to the nations. That people would notice that there's something different. Because a group of people like this shouldn't be together. But we're here because of you and what you've done in our lives. We want to be slaves to you, Jesus. So I pray right now for every broken heart that there would be healing. For every broken relationship, there would be mending. For people who need the courage to offer forgiveness and the people who need the courage to ask for it. I pray that this would be a holy moment. Your spirit would move. And right in this moment, we would experience your presence in a way we never have before. Because Jesus, we just want to be like you in your name I pray. Amen. As you feel led, you can take communion. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, 
we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.